Is the eternality of hell morally just? Well, we check out some clips from some recent Pastor's Perspective shows on this episode of The Unapologetic Show. Welcome to The Unapologetic Show, where we make the case for why Christianity still makes sense in a world of doubt with near-apostate, now-pastor and apologist, Dr. Bobby Conway. I'm your host, Tim Hall. There is a massive change coming to One Minute Apologist. We are working behind the scenes on something new that we hope to reveal to you in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to this show for more details. As the end of the year approaches, we want to thank all of you that have graciously supported this show. If you feel led to donate, we would greatly appreciate it. And you can do that at oneminuteapologist.com slash form. Let's get to the questions. God is a is a dictator, and if you don't do what he wants, he tortures you for all eternity. So people can be nice their entire life, do good to others, etc., but if they don't accept him, he kills them. There's no mercy there, only judgment. What do you say about that, Brian? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, you know, human beings are created by God for God and live in rebellion to God. And if they persist in that, yes, they will be judged. And um, that's the way it is. And, you know, if you don't like it, you just have to go find another planet where it's somehow done differently. But good luck on that. So, you know, I, I have little sympathy for that question because it's just obvious the person is not looking for any kind of an answer. Uh, they just want to make their point. But the, the point is true. There, there is a judgment. Uh, God gives us life. He gives us breath. He allows us to live on his earth and he allows us to enjoy all of the wonderful things that we enjoy throughout life. And for the person who wants to, in the end, just, you know, give God the middle finger, uh, yes, judgment is awaiting them. That is exactly what is there. Um, but there, there's, there is mercy because at any time, even in the last breath, that person who spent their entire life uh, rejecting God, um, blaspheming God, uh, abusing the things that God has given them, at any, at any time prior to their last breath, they can turn and receive forgiveness and be given life. Yeah. So to me, that is mercy. Now, they rejected God all their life. They didn't want anything to do with him, but they were nice to other people, and they, you know, were, they, they, they loved animals. Doesn't that count for something, Bobby? What would you say? Well, I mean, I think that's great that they loved animals and that they're <laughs> nice to other people. I would never say that just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that you can't do good things. Uh, it's just because... Uh, God has written the moral law on our heart. So even the fact that people that reject God find themselves doing good things or doing good things because God has built them uh, with something of himself. That is, he has created them with the moral law within. So of course, even non-believers have a sense of right and wrong. Uh, but then when we start coming into the judgment seat and saying that God is wrong 
to do what God has done, uh, that he should have made it another way. Well, let's just look at it this way. Uh, God, number one, has went to great lengths to make it possible for people to believe in him. Uh, and when you think about heaven, you think about hell, we're talking about, do you want to be with God or not? And those who don't want to be with God, uh, he lets them have what they want, an existence uh, disconnected from relational community with him. Those that want to be with him, uh, you know, he allows us to no longer be alienated to him. For me personally, I would also say, uh, you know, to the person, do you recognize that if God created you in his image uh, and he's invited you into a relationship, uh, if you're going to stand before him someday and he is going to say, well, you know, there was this time on pastor's perspective and they said how much I love you. And I sent my son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins, to forgive you so that you could spend forever with me. Uh, and you ultimately wanted what you wanted. You didn't want to be with me. Well, why are we getting uh, mad at God? Well, I know why, because we don't like uh, the thought of hell. And so maybe that what God should have done is just create annihilationism then, so that that way when you die, you're just annihilated. Um, you know. But then we have to deal with you know, justice. And so then you go, okay, well, that's unjust to have a, um, an eternal hell for a, a, a temporal life. Uh, so then you might want to go, well, why in the world would, you know, we be punished forever? Uh, because I think that once we get to hell, uh, I, I don't include myself in that collective we, but what ends up happening is the sinning is intensified. So the reason it, hell goes on forever uh, and people stay there forever is because they keep on sinning forever. Uh, their soul is meant to live and outlast the grave. And so what ends up taking place is now the very things that people talk about, like I took care of the animals, I did these good things. Well, in hell, people realize the only reason they did those good things is because the moral law was on their heart and that moral law is no longer operative where people can do good things virtuous things in hell because they chose to have God completely out of their life. So that's a little bit what I'd say. I think that there's a clear hardness of heart and there's, you know, two ways to look at it. You can look at that and say, you know, God's just a, a malevolent bully. He's a dictator and I reject him. Um, I can look at it differently. I look at it and think, wow, I mean, I, I'm utterly sinful. It's, uh, you know, it's God's grace and mercy that was willing to forgive me, to shower me with his love. He's willing to give me eternal life with himself. And so uh, it comes down to perspective. And I'd rather give God the benefit of the doubt than not. But explain what you mean by the sinning goes on forever, because that may sound to some people like, oh, we're going to party in hell forever. That's going to be awesome. Well, unfortunately, I think that you are going to uh, you're going to party in hell forever. You're going to sin forever, but it's not going to be a fun party. Uh, it, 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 you're not going to be able to get the enjoyment that you do this side of heaven from sin. Sin can be fun for a season. Uh, the Bible talks about that. But in hell, you're going to be filled with uh, sinful thoughts, hatred toward God, uh, you know, hatred uh, filled with you know, all kinds of lusts that you can't fulfill. Uh, so it's going to be a place where all of the cravings that you found fulfillment in, those sinful on earth, is going to be a place where perhaps the cravings are still there, but there's no way of fulfilling it. 
Uh, was Jesus a socialist? That's what Casey in Virginia wants to know. Welcome, Casey. Well, welcome to you, and thank you for taking my call. You bet. I hope you can uh, give me some scripture or some definite uh, yes or no's. Well, I'm having a discussion with another friend, and um, I would like to know what you you all think about it. Now, what examples is your friend giving you uh, to support their claim that Jesus was a socialist? Uh, because Jesus taught love, love your neighbor, and give things to people with no expectations. And that's essentially it. Okay. Bobby, what do you say to Casey? It's a great question, and a lot of people might make that conclusion based off of Acts chapter 2 uh, when we read in verses 42 to 47 after the Holy Spirit falls that people were basically selling their belongings to give to those who were in need. Jesus was neither a capitalist nor was he a socialist. Uh, to put him in any of these modern day uh, type of uh, you know econ economic um, philosophies would be a mistake. Uh, Jesus understood, uh, you know, the, the government that he lived within, and he said, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Uh, and so you have to imagine that when the gospel's spreading, in some ways, it's a good thing that we weren't prescribed a particular economic strategy that was supposed to go over an entire nation. Otherwise, we might be tempted to impose that. Uh, Jesus, having the foresight of the church and its growth, would know uh, that we are going to be in positions, uh, that we live in many different nations, and we're going to have a lot of obstacles to overcome just getting people to connect to the gospel. And so our job as Christians is not to impose any sort of economic theory or philosophy. Rather, the Bible talks about generosity, but the Bible also talks about how God blesses us. The Bible talks about uh, giving stuff away. The rich young ruler, there have been people out of that story have sought, who have sought to be, um, become, um, you know, people who push a poverty gospel of sorts. Uh, but that was the heart issue of the rich young ruler. So Jesus interacted with people where they were, right? We need to remember that uh, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Uh, Abraham was blessed with many riches. Solomon was blessed with many riches. So too was David. Uh, it's not like because Jesus comes on the scene uh, that having uh, wealth was a bad thing. Uh, rather, wealth having you is what is a bad thing. That's the idolatry of it. So the Lord will give people great resources that can be used in a kingdom kind of way. Other people will uh, be so, so uh, into wealth that he might say, like he said to the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have and come follow me. In other words, this is getting in the way of you seeing me. So when you think about economics, so to speak, it's not that there's a theory that we can overlay on a state or a nation because the principles that we see are applied on a personal level. So things that we learn economically is that we are to give of our first fruits to the Lord, that we are to be generous, that money is not to have us. Those are the types of uh, ideas that we should think about. And then those principles can be applied personally regardless of the particular economy that we're in. 
to erect socialism or capitalism would be to take a modern day theory and impose it on the Bible. And that would be a horrible form of biblical or hermeneutics. Mike, what would you add? Thank you. Yeah, I would agree with Bobby. It's it's simply anachronistic to take a relatively modern category or system of economic and political theory and project it back thousands of years onto Jesus or anyone else uh, for that matter. It simply didn't exist in its present form. And so I think we have to recognize the tendency today for political and social expediency. People want to grab the name of Jesus because uh, the name of Jesus still has social currency uh, in uh, the Western world. And so I think when people are trying to advance a candidate or a political policy or something of that nature, they love to say, hey, Jesus agrees with me. See, even Jesus would do what I'm doing or something like that. And and I think that, you know, uh, not always, but I think a lot of times people are not really respecting and honoring the person and name of Jesus Christ. Because if I'm going to start using his name, I better be darn sure that what I'm saying is accurate and faithful to him. Just like you and I wouldn't want somebody grabbing our name and our reputation and throwing it on the internet, on Instagram or something, and splicing some saying that I never said. Mm -hmm. And saying, see, Mike supports this. And it's like, nope, I never said that, even though that's my picture. So, I, I think we just have to be careful uh, whenever we're wading into the, some of these modern discussions. It's not that the Bible doesn't have something to say, but it's usually something to say by way of application. We interpret things and then we apply it to new and changing circumstances. But a lot of times, you know, there's not going to be a one-to-one -one equivalent with some of these, you know, modern categories that we're now facing. What do you think, Casey? Does this help you? Do you think it'll help your friend? I doubt it will help my friends, but um, it's good to have something to discuss with her. She seems to think that Jesus um, touted socialism as a philosophy. And uh, so I was hoping you all could maybe give me some scripture that I could um, uh, refer her to. Yeah, well, and, and again... Part of this depends on somebody, how is somebody defining it. Some people have a kind of a generic definition of socialist. Some have a very complicated definition of socialism. Or com For some people, socialism and communism are the same. Uh, technically, they're, they're a little bit different. So do you mean this? Do you mean that? Um, you know, there's been socialists who call themselves socialists, but really they would be considered communists. So, you know, I, I think what's happened, and, and I don't know if this is your friend's instance, but you can kind of cherry pick certain um, sayings of Jesus, particularly in the parables. For example, there's the parable of the vineyard workers. And a, f mm. a friend who's, you know, just left-wing leaning um, went to seminary with me. And he pointed out that uh, each of the day workers shows up and they, they work a different number of hours. Somebody mm -hmm. showed up at nine, somebody shows up 12, somebody shows up three. And then Jesus pays them all the same thing. And they're like, see, this is right in the face of <laughs> capitalism. This is like socialism, communism. And I'm like, yeah, but quite ironically, then the... The day workers that got paid the same wage but work longer were upset. And then Jesus says, do I not have the right to do what I want with my own stuff? So you have private property. I'm able to do what I want with it. Then you have ancient Israel and you have private property right laws. So again, some of this would blend the definition between socialism and communism. Does the government, you know, own all the property and the means of production and all that kind of stuff? Because in ancient Israel, even in the Old Testament, 
I, I wouldn't say they were capitalists. Once again, I think that's anachronistic. But was there such a thing as private property? You know, uh, was there difference in in levels of wealth? And did God seem to be okay with that? And yes, God didn't give everyone the same amount of money. You know, and so you know, I would just say. Some, if somebody's honest, can you find some stuff in the Bible that might seem like, oh, hey, I think that, that I recognize that as being what I understand today as socialism. You could find stuff like that. But I also think before you say that, you need to look at the rest of the things that complicate the picture. Yep. And I would say ultimately don't allow you to categorize Jesus as a socialist. Yeah. Bobby? Yeah, that's so good, Mike. I mean, in the Bible, uh, you've got situations where widows are around uh, and they're exhorted to be helped uh, you know by the church uh, but it doesn't say make sure the widow has the same amount of money as you uh, it doesn't say that at all Ananias and Sapphira uh, they 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 had brought uh, their land sales uh, and laid it at the apostles feet uh, and they weren't obligated to do that uh, they just did it. So that was not obligatory. Uh, and so, in other words, they could have held on to their own property, so to speak. Uh, when you think about um, taking care of your parents or, or what have you in the Bible, it doesn't say make sure that you spread your wealth equally amongst your parents. So there's an assumption that there's the poor that will always be with you. And so we're told to take care of the poor, but we're not to told, be told if we're rich uh, to become moderate in our wealth so that the poor can become moderate as well. We're just told to help. Uh, so there seems to be that kind of thinking in the Bible. Mike's exactly right. It's anachronistic uh, to go back and impose socialism. Uh, the history of socialism uh, kind of goes back to the French Revolution in 1789. Uh, you know, you'll have earlier, um, you know, ideas of that. Uh, the Communist Manifesto, uh, which I've read by Marx and Engels, uh, you know, we saw that. That would be uh, published in the 19th century. But you're talking about a philosophy as it relates to impose imposition on nations is not even coming into emergence until certain revolutions start to take place. So you could think about uh, Lenin, for example, in the Bolshevik uh, uh, revolution that took place in 1917. His desire after being influenced by reading uh, Marx and Engels was to overlay that uh, on Russia. And so what happened? Obviously, there's a revolution. They overthrew stuff. I mean, a lot of these different revolutions that have happened, by the way, the French Revolution, um, you know, the, the, the revolution in Russia, the 19 revolution, uh, 1911 revolution in China. Uh, there have been different revolutions. You think about uh, Che Guevara uh, in, in Cuba. I mean, it's not like these are all positive things. So I would say this this person is wanting then if they're not willing to budge to the bible here it's because what's more important is a philosophy that would come about uh, almost 2000 years after the time of jesus and so to just go and put that on top of the bible uh, then w where else does this person feel led that they can kind of manipulate the bible to fit their current tastes so uh, i would say uh, the last thing uh, pertaining to this issue 
is it's important that you can maybe ask her, what is it about socialism that you like? And I think that the things that she likes about it, like, you know, sharing, caring for the poor, you can absolutely find those principles. But trying to make sure that everybody has equal measures. I mean, there's no way to do that unless you enforce it by uh, the government. And then the government gets corrupt. And that's the problem where com- where socialism turns into uh, communism. And then you got this Marxist theory that becomes so toxic, unfortunately. Isn't it interesting that sharing and caring and all this other stuff originated with the church? And uh, but now the government wants to take over. And, and when they take over, it just becomes a mess. Hey, I got a quick question. It's humorous, okay? <laughs> it's not it's not deep now, but it but it is deep. But okay, here I go. When Jesus was born, um, in those days, uh, if you had a uh, like five or six sheep and a couple of cows and a horse and a house, you were pretty well off. You're probably middle class. Well, when Jesus was born, the three kings brought him. Gold and silver and frankincense and myrrh. And uh, when the next day, when Joseph and Mary got up, they were rich. I mean, <laughs> in those days, they were probably rich. My, my question is what did they do with the money? I think they tithed, right? That's what we were talking about in the beginning of the program. John, uh, what would you say to Daryl? Well, interesting question. Yeah, Never it, had that it one really before, is interesting. Think. Now, we're not specifically told what happened to that, but it's assumed, you remember that um, the next, uh, or that night, um, Joseph was warned by an angel in a dream that Herod was out to kill Jesus, and so um, he was instructed to take his family and flee to Egypt. And so, um, the time that uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus were in Egypt until Herod the Great died. It's believed that um, that the the gold um, that they received that that actually was used to um, finance their time in Egypt. Um, because one thing that we do know from from the Gospels is that when Jesus was um, you know uh, doing his itinerant ministry, he wasn't known for his wealth. You know, Jesus said, "The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay." down his head so whatever the amount was um it's assumed that that's probably was the means that joseph was able to use to take care of his family while they were in egypt isn't that that's how life works sometimes you get like this bonus or something and you're like oh look i've got some extra money and then the car breaks down mm-hmm. it's like oh that's what that extra money was yeah it's just yeah. providence it's yeah. the way that god provides yeah thoughts from you bobby well uh, number one uh yeah, we, we want to be careful that we don't make an assumption. That's what prosperity gospel does. It assumes that Jesus was rich because he had a purple robe, uh, which is just absurd uh, to assume that you're rich because you got a purple robe. Uh, and it would be absurd to assume that he's rich because of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, uh, number one, what of that would really be uh, wealth creating would be gold. But it doesn't say how much gold. I mean, it could have been a little bit of gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what John said is spot on. I mean, we, we don't know what happened to it, but, but to, to, to really slam dunk this here, in my opinion, it's Mary's offering at the temple. She brought her uh, turtle doves, which was the offering of a poor person mm-hmm. uh, when it came time to dedicate Jesus. So if she was so rich, 
Why is it that when she brought her offering, she brought the offering that was allotted for a poor person to give? So why didn't she bring that gold and lay it out? So I think that anything that goes to try to say that um, Mary and Joseph were rich would be now what if they were rich would that be wrong no uh, but if they were rich that doesn't mean that we're called to be rich um and what if jesus was rich would that be wrong no but jesus modeled uh living uh, a very modest life he says foxes have holes birds have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head uh, it seems like uh you know we don't even know if he had his own house. We, we know that it says he goes home in Capernaum, but some even wonder if he's staying at Simon's house uh, when he's going home. Uh, so uh, it talks about in Philippians 2, basically he, he, he set aside his rights, right? I mean, he set aside all the wealth that, that, that he would have absolute access to, humbling himself, taking the form of a doulos, of a slave, of a servant, uh, taking on the appearance of a man. Uh, so... Uh, then when he sends his disciples out, he doesn't say, here's a bunch of cash, man. What does he do? <laughs> he basically sends them out with nothing mm-hmm. and says, go do evangelism. And I'm going to show you that I'm with you uh, and you're not going to have anything. Uh, you're going to have to trust in me and others to provide. Uh, so all that to say, uh, I have no problem whatsoever with God blessing people with wealth. I'm glad that he does insofar as they're generous toward the kingdom. But there's a lot of people that uh, aren't wealthy and they'll never be wealthy, but it doesn't mean they're not spiritually wealthy. Mm. And the prosperity gospel, it sends a message that makes people think, well, I must not be spiritually um, prosperous um, because I'm not financially prosperous. So there's something broken in me. And that's the part that we have to be very cautious of. Well, thanks for checking out this episode of the show. We will meet you next time on The Unapologetic Show. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa.